Anyway, we're in Matthew chapter 17. We'll, Lord willing, finish up this chapter today. Sometimes uh, messages can come across sounding complicated. And sometimes it's because the very word that we're reading sounds complicated. And I find myself in that position this morning dealing with a passage that uh, I have found to be somewhat complicated. But I'm hoping that God will help us. I have prayed for simplicity. I've actually prayed that He would help me with the economy of words. Because sometimes, you know, you can go on and on and on trying to make something clear and it just becomes fuzzier, you know. And I don't want to do that. And so... I trust that you've prayed as well and that we're entering into this portion of Scripture. It is God's Word. In fact, uh, much of what we're looking at is what Jesus said Himself. And so we want to hear what the Spirit has to say to us through this Word today. I do. I hope you are thinking the same way. I've entitled this, The Sons Are Free. There are a number of different ways we might approach this passage and points of emphasis, but uh, I'm trying to uh, bring the thoughts together around that idea of the sons are free. And just maybe it would be helpful for you to know that there's a number of ways you can even approach that idea of being free. And uh, so we're going to be focusing on one aspect of that freedom uh, this morning from this passage. Matthew chapter 17, beginning at verse 22 Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up and they were exceedingly sorrowful. I have questioned over the past several weeks, knowing I was going to be coming to these two verses. Why is it there? Why was this seemingly just dropped into this narrative that Matthew is giving? What is the significance of it? And the significance, at least, that I am seeing is in connection to what follows. They were exceedingly sorrowful. And then Matthew continues, when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax. If you have an old King James, it says tribute. It is literally um, didrachma. Didrachma is the literal word. Some translations even use that. But it's a it's it's a um, it's talking about the temple tax. Okay, and that's why the New King James translates it that way. So those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, "Does your teacher not pay that tax, the temple tax?" And he said, "Yes." And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? He's not talking about the temple tax there. He's talking about taxes in general, the kings of the earth, and he's... He's being parabolic here. He's using an illustration to drive home a point. Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Free from that tax. 
free from tax. And of course, in the context, he's saying to Peter, free from the temple tax. Nevertheless, again, a key key word, nevertheless, lest we offend them, these tax collectors, and perhaps even broader than that, but at least these tax collectors, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. When I... I read that, I thought of Casey, and Casey's not here, he may be listening online, but I thought, boy, Casey, wouldn't you like to fish like that? And not just get a fish. I mean, some people have even made this, it didn't literally happen, it was just, that was also just parabolic, and, and, and Jesus was saying, just go about your business, I'll provide. But this is a miracle. And, and, it, and it reads like a miracle. So I don't think we explained it away. And so when... When you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of, of money. In other words, those two drachma. You'll find what you need to pay. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Now, the closer Jesus comes to the hour and purpose for which he came to earth. What was the hour and the purpose for which he came to earth? It was his death. In John chapter 12, he makes that very clear. In fact, he said to his father, glorify me. And the father responds, I have glorified and will glorify my name yet again in you. That's in John chapter 12. And so the Holy Spirit guides Matthew to include the incident recorded in verses 24 through 27, immediately following Jesus' announcement of his death and resurrection. Remember, Matthew is writing with a Jewish audience in mind. The temple was central to them. The temple was not a bad thing. It was central in their minds. And under the law, it should have been. And Jesus has already said in an earlier visit to Jerusalem, and it's recorded in John chapter 2, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's giving hints all along the way that his death is coming. And remember, he said, John says at that point, he's giving a commentary, that he was speaking of his body when he said that. He wasn't talking about the literal temple, although he's going to talk about that too. The destruction of that too. But he was talking about his body. But no one, including the disciples, understood what Jesus meant. And John records that in John chapter 2. They didn't get it until after the resurrection. Then they thought back on that and said, oh, that's what he was talking about. And so it is in the case before. So while, while Matthew, now while Matthew was a former tax collector, so, so see, Mark and Luke don't record this incident of the taxation here. Matthew does. And so we might say, well, it's because he was a tax collector, he was interested in that sort of thing, and so he just throws that into the mix as he moves on to other things. I don't think that at all is what's going on. Now it may be that he had a particular interest in this, this subject of taxes. But there's something far deeper, far greater going on here than just simply a story of interest in the life of Jesus. It's not simply about paying taxes. 
Now, later on in Matthew chapter 21 or 22, I believe it is, there will be an incident where it will be about relationship to the government and paying taxes. And we'll get to that. That's not what this is foremost, at least about. In fact, hardly at all. In verses 22 and 23, then. Jesus on his in Galilee, he's on his way with the disciples from Caesarea Philippi. That's the place where the Mount of Transfiguration took place. Okay, near that. So that has happened. And now he's on his way, actually, ultimately to Jerusalem, down to Judea and to Jerusalem. And he's at this point going to Capernaum, which was his ministry home base. It's where Peter lived. He had a house there. And Jesus says that his death and resurrection is about to happen. And this is a little different than what he has said before about his death and resurrection. Here he says it is about he's about to be trade. It doesn't record doesn't say that in the old King James. It says he shall be. But the, the word is a word that actually means this is about to happen. So he is within six months of his crucifixion at this point. And he adds here that he's going to be betrayed. Now, hearing that. The disciples responded with, it says they were exceedingly sorrowful. Now, I'm not going to say much about that. Later on, Jesus does address this idea of sorrow. It's a legitimate idea, by the way, but probably not for the reason that they are sorrowful. They don't get it. They don't understand what is going on. Mark and Luke clearly say that. They do not understand. And so they're they're sorrowing. Jesus says in John 16, 20 through 22, that you're going to sorrow. The world's going to rejoice. You're about to really enter into a sorrow that you've not experienced before, but your sorrow will be turned into joy, he says. Therefore, you now have sorrow like a woman in labor. You remember that passage in John chapter 16? But he says, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. But they're not there yet. They're not there in their understanding yet. That won't happen until after the resurrection. So the problem for the disciples is they were still under the shadow of the common Jewish mindset regarding a political messiah. And they did not yet understand that this temple worship would come to an end in Jesus. And so this encounter was an opportunity for Jesus to teach them spiritual and practical truth that would eventually be understood, though I don't believe that Peter or the disciples grasp what Jesus was saying here at this point. But we can read it and we can see The point Jesus is making because we have the rest of the story, right? And that's the way it is with much of Scripture for us. And so Matthew connects Jesus' announcement and Peter's response to a confrontation with tax collectors in Capernaum. He says in verse 24, when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax approached Peter. Now, these are not publicans. Publicans were tax collectors, but they were agents of Rome. That's not what's going on here. These are Jews who were responsible to collect the half shekel annual tax from men 20 years old and above 
for the maintenance of the temple and its worship in Jerusalem. Go back to Exodus chapter 30 right quick. And here's where this tax comes from. Acts, uh, excuse me, Exodus 30 and verse 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, when you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom. Hang on to that idea there. Toward the end of the message, we're going to come back to that. Every man shall give a ransom, a, a, a price of a life. For himself to the Lord, when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. This is what every every one among you, among those who are numbered, shall give half a shekel. According to the shekel of the sanctuary, a shekel is 20 giras. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more. The poor shall not give less than half a shekel when you give an offering to the Lord to make an atonement. So you have a ransom and an atonement. That's what this money is, this half shekel, a ransom and an atonement for yourselves. And you shall take the atonement money. And it's related to the tabernacle. It's related to the temple. You shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. We're not going to look at the, uh, the scriptures for sake of time, but if you were to go read in, in Exodus 38. In verses 24 and following, you'll see that this money that was collected, the shekels, it tells you how much it amounted to. And it was used in the in the building, the preparation of the tabernacle in the wilderness. It was built by the collection of these funds. Now, fast forward to the reign of Joash when the temple now we've gone from the tabernacle to the temple and the temple was in disarray. It needed repair. And so there was a collection that was made or tribute that was taken in order to repair the temple. And what they said at that time is this is what Moses said should be done. And it's a reference back to Exodus. And so at that point, if this doesn't seem to be in the law anyway, established as an annual thing. So then you fast forward to post Babylon and in Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, you see that funds were used, were collected. The same funds, a temple tax, except here it was a third instead of a half. And that those funds were used for the the temple, the temple service, the temple worship. Well, then fast forward to Jesus time somewhere along the line. This became an annual taxation. And every serious minded, committed Jew was expected to pay this tax. It's literally two drachma, which is a half shekel. And it was a it was to be given in a Jewish coin, which is what the money changers were all about. The money changers actually changed foreign currency into this this currency in order to be used for the support of the temple. 
And so this annual tax was due before the Passover. Well, it was now overdue because we're six months past the Passover as Jesus and his disciples come into Capernaum. Peter's house is there. Peter's known. Jesus is known. They come to Peter. And the question is asked in verse 24. Does your teacher, does your master not pay the temple tax? Now, the manner of the question implies that these collectors were suspicious of Jesus. He doesn't, they don't say, does your teacher pay the tax? But does your, peach, does your teacher not pay the tax? You can hear in the question that there's the implication that they weren't sure that he really was a committed Jew. He wasn't really committed to the temple. They were suspicious of him. Peter, concerned about that, immediately says yes. That's interesting. He said yes. He didn't consult with Jesus. He said yes. It's sort of a, a defensive answer implying that he was protecting his master's reputation as a Jew and his loyalty to the temple and its related worship. So do so you get the picture? You see what's going on here. Now, the subsequent exchange between Jesus and Peter forms the heart of this message. Or, excuse me, of this passage. Well, the message too. But of this passage. And there are two specific words that stood out in my mind, that indicate that Jesus intends more than simply a lesson about paying taxes. In verse 25, Jesus anticipated him. He preempted him. He spoke first. He didn't wait for Peter to engage him. He didn't wait for Peter to tell him what happened. Hey, you know what they asked me out there? You know what I said? No, he he jumped. Jesus jumped on this opportunity because he knew that Peter had defended him before the tax collectors. And there's a sense in which Jesus is going to let him know you didn't really have to do that. But he did. And so he uses this as an occasion to teach a fundamental truth that I hope you'll be able to see as we work through this these verses. And then in verse 27, so there's a spiritual truth that is being that is being taught in this passage. And then in verse 27, when Jesus when Jesus says, nevertheless, the fundamental truth that Jesus announces in verse 26, then the sons are free. That's a fundamental truth. But then in that context of that freedom, he says, nevertheless, Lest we offend them. And then that's followed by a miracle of provision. Now, Jesus was not afraid to offend when necessary, right? We know that. But here he chooses not to. And that's significant. And there's a message here. He's setting a precedent for us in his kingdom and how we operate in the world, in the context in which we live. So the first thing, the first point that I want you to see, and this is what we'll see to cultivate with an economy of words. I'm working on it. Jesus' mission to earth was not to perpetuate Old Testament temple worship. Now, you probably know that already. 
Right? You're a believer. You know that already. They didn't know that, you see. Peter didn't know that. The disciples didn't know. They didn't know what was going on. Ultimately, they did not understand. They did not understand the significance of Christ's death and resurrection, you see. And so here he reasons with Peter that he and those who are his are exempt from the temple tax in verses 25 and 26. And so Jesus poses a question to Peter in the form of a parable. What do you think, Simon? By the way, Jesus seldom called Peter, Peter. He named him Peter, but ordinarily he called him Simon. Just Point of interest, there may be more significance to that than what I've thought about, but that's just a note. From whom do the, maybe it's because Simon hasn't yet matured and grown to the place that he needs to grow, I don't know. But, he says, what do you think? What are you thinking? I've got, got a question for you. From who do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Kings in that day depended upon taxes from the general citizenry of their kingdoms. And those taxes funded their kingdom. But those taxes also, perhaps even more importantly, provided for their sons. In other words, the royal household was supported by the taxes of the people, the citizenry. And so... Peter understood what Jesus was asking, and he responds from strangers, not from sons, from strangers. Kings don't exact taxes from their own family, but from strangers. Literally, that word that the that is translated strangers is actually other than. It is literally other than. And I think that is helpful in our interpretation of what's going on here. Because it's not necessarily talking about people outside of the king's kingdom. He's talking about those that are within the kingdom, but they're not part of the family. So they're other than the sons, not one's own, not the king's own. These are all who are not sons. And so Jesus concludes Essentially, you're right. And here's what that means. The sons are free. Then the sons are free. They're exempt. They're not obligated. There's no expectation of the sons to pay the taxes that the others pay. The rest of whatever kingdom it might be. So what does Jesus mean? Who is represented by kings and sons and strangers in this parable? Well, first, he is saying something fundamental about himself. Who is the king of all the earth? We just read it in Psalm 47. Jehovah. God, in the minds of the Jews, God is the king of all the earth. Jehovah is the king of all the earth. And what has Jehovah, what has the king of all the earth said just days earlier? He said, this is my beloved son. And because he is the son of the living God, 
He's free. He is free. Furthermore, the temple which this tax sustained, was supposed to sustain, is his father's house. Right? In John chapter 2 and verse 16, Jesus, as he was driving the money changers and those who were selling animals, driving them out of the temple. He says, he refers to the temple as my father's house. He's free. He's a son. He's not just a son. He's the son of the king of all the earth. Now, I know he is the king of kings and lord of lords, but in the Jewish mind, Yahweh, he's talking about what from their perspective, you see. I am the son of the king. And also, this temple is scheduled to be demolished. And he's going to pointedly say that later in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Now, he doesn't say this here because he's not ready for this to be so clearly revealed. So much of what's going on here in the context of that day is a sort of veiled or subtle way of saying what is being said. But later on, we'll get to it, week, uh, uh, several months later, Matthew 24, 1 and 2, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and His disciples came up to show Him the buildings of the temple. They were still at that time impressed with the buildings of the temple. They were still under that mindset, the significance of this temple. And by the way, the temple was significant in its time. But you see there's something changing here. And you, of course, we're, we're seeing it as we progress through the gospel. But Jesus is dropping, we could say at least hence, but he is dropping these ideas that there is a change going on. Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Matthew 24 and verse 2. Why will that temple be destroyed? Because Jesus is the true temple in whom dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's what the temple was, the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. The glory came down upon the tabernacle. The glory came down upon the temple. The glory came down upon Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's the Son. He's the temple. In fact, back in chapter 12 and verse 6, he actually said, there's one among you who is greater than the temple, right? Matthew 12 and verse 6. And so I say, in a somewhat subtle way, at this point in his ministry, Jesus is saying, he did not come to perpetuate the old, the old temple or the old carnal ordinances that revolved around that temple, but to replace it. To replace it with what? To replace it with what? Himself. Himself. It was, it was glorious in its day. Second Corinthians chapter three. It was glorious in its day. And it was important in its day. And for its purpose. 
But as all of the law, it pointed to Him. So He is the new temple. Not a place, but a person. And that's exactly what Jesus said on another occasion in the Gospel of John. You know, I, my Father seeks those who worship Him in spirit and truth. There's a, there's a chance, there's gonna come a time where it won't be in this mountain or that mountain, this place or that place. You see, there's a transition going on here. And Peter and the other apostles weren't, weren't getting it. But Jesus is teaching them and all of this is going to come to clarity in time to their minds as it, I trust, has to ours. By the way, there are multitudes of Jews, multitude of professing Jews anyway, in our day who have not seen this. But worship no longer. In fact, I would even say there may be others that aren't Jews who haven't seen this. And, and worship is so bound to a building and to a place that they can hardly worship unless they're glued to that building or that that place. And that's one of the reasons why millions of dollars are, are, are spent on trinkets and buildings. You know? A waste of New Covenant money. Because worship is no longer bound to a stone building, but in spirit and in truth and wherever we are. But he's also saying something else. Not only is he saying that I am free when he says he says, then the sons are free. That is plural. He is saying something about Peter and he is saying something about all of us who are united with him. Sons. In the parable, Jesus says strangers are taxed, others are taxed. And these are those who are not sons. It's the sons who are free. It's the sons who are exempt from the requirement to pay the temple tax. Or perpetuating that which was about to be abolished. And who are the sons? John the Baptist has already clearly stated back in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9 that it's, it's not those who simply are the physical descendants of Abraham, right? Because he said, uh, as he spoke to these, the, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And then in John chapter 8, Jesus addresses this idea again. When he said, if you abide in my... Speaking to Jews who were very proud of their, of their physical heritage, of their lineage. And thinking that that's where their freedom rested. But they were bound to support a carnal institution, not seeing what that carnal institution pointed to. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. John 8, 32, continuing 33, John 8, 33, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. Of course, Jesus is going to go on to say, no, you are of your father, the devil. You sure too have been in bondage. You just don't recognize it. How can you say you will be made free? 
Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, who paid? Who paid taxes? In Jesus' day, let's not even argue whether it was a legitimate Mosaic tax. Let's not argue that. They thought it was. That's where they were coming from. Who paid it? It it was not the Gentiles. It was not the nations of the world. It was Jews who paid this temple tax. But Jesus is saying not all Jews are Jews. In other words, not all Jews are sons, because the sons, the sons are free. Jews are bound. They're under the law. They're bound. They're stuck supporting the temple because they've not seen that there's the fulfillment of that temple, you see. So Jesus is making a distinction here between Jews who are sons and those who are other than or strangers, those who are not in the royal family. And so who are the sons? You know already, don't you? Jesus said on another occasion, he who receives me receives him who sent me. This thing of sonship has everything to do with your relationship to Jesus Christ, the son, right? The son of the living God. If you've received him, you've received him who sent him. He is your father as he is his father. There is this thing called union in Christ that brings us into this relationship with God as our father in a way, in a way, not exact, but in a way as Jesus, the son is with his father. We're not eternal. And our essence is not his essence. But in Christ We are tightly united. And you've heard much about that in recent weeks. John wrote, As many as receive Him, to them He gave the right to become the authority, the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. Paul later wrote much more clearly even than Jesus spoke or John wrote. When he said, Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law and the temple and the worship and all that. that God, Jesus was born under that. That's important to keep in mind because of what we're going to say here in a few moments. To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Jesus Christ. You're, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter now, Jew or Gentile. It's not a Jew or Gentile thing that's even under consideration. It's who are the sons? And that doesn't depend upon your genealogy. Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to 
to the promise. All who are in the Son then are sons. And if you're sons, you're free. That's what Jesus said. Then the sons are free. Free from the obligation to support a system that is obsolete. Our relationship to God is not by way of a religious system. Even a good one, even a right one, even one that had you lived in that time, you would have lived under. Talking about the Old Testament, Old Covenant. But we have been liberated. The temple is no longer the focus of our worship. We're not supporting that. We're in Christ who is the new temple. And we are a temple formed by Him. And so He is the end of that old system and temple. He's the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. And so, Peter, you're free. You are free in Me. I'm the temple. And that same thing is true for you and for me. By the way, by the way, no wonder the blind religious leaders hated Jesus so much. They, of course, they weren't seeing the fulfillment of Christ, but there was, I think, more to it than that for many of them. For many of them, their wealth depended on that temple worship. They made money by it. And there's a whole lot of people doing the same thing today in the world of religion. But had they heard his message, they would have been free. Indeed. And, and brothers and sisters, and I know, you know, we can, anything I say, there's always this, you know, other idea that may come to your mind. But I will say to you, I'm convinced that Jesus wanted these tax collectors to be free. He wanted them to experience the freedom. He wanted His disciples to experience this freedom. He wanted those in His day to hear the message. And this is why, and there's a bit of transition here, why I see Him saying what He says in verse 27. He could have stopped at verse 26. Then the sons are free. But there's a a point that Jesus wants to make. And it's this. And it's almost like, Peter, you didn't have to defend me. But since you did defend me, nevertheless, since you did defend me, since you put your word on the line, I'm going to provide that temple tax. I'm going to provide that tax for this reason. Lest we offend them. Nevertheless, lest we offend them. Go to the sea. Cast in a hook. Take the fish that comes up first. You've opened the mouth. You see the two coins. You see what is, I say the, the piece of money. You'll see the, uh, the, the, the two half shekels. Really one full shekel. Uh, that would pay the tax that was demanded for me and for you. Now while Jesus was technically exempt because of who he is, he chooses to pay. Now think about this. And this is the way you have to read Scripture because we're dealing with progressive revelation here. At this point, Jesus had not died. At this point, He had not risen. At this point, the, the temple was still intact. At this point, temple worship was still proper. It was right. The temple stood pointing to Him. 
And he did not want to be misunderstood as opposed to Old Testament temple worship while it yet stood. Remember, he came to fulfill the law, not just to destroy it. And he also did not want to give needless cause for his message to be dismissed. And that seems to be a major motivation for doing what he does here. In other words, he wasn't just crossing off those temple tax collectors. He wasn't just crossing off his generation. Now, eventually, darkness will fall. Judgment will fall upon that nation. But here, it hasn't yet totally fallen, you see. And so, he is saying, let's not offend. Now, eventually, like I say, he's going to offend. When he says, it's all come tumbling down. He's going to say that very clearly. These buildings are coming down. But he's not. He's not saying that here. Here he's saying, you know what? Let's, that's what they expect. He doesn't even deal with whether it's right or not. That's what they expect. There's nothing wrong with this. Because he's, he seems to me keeping the door of opportunity for his message to be heard. And so... The payment of a full shackle for he and Peter was miraculously provided. It's amazing. I suppose the whole message could could be around that fact, uh, Michael, in the last hour, I was thinking about this when you were talking about the providence of God and, and how he controls everything. That man that showed up, I'd never seen that before. You know, who was that man, you know? And I, I'm, a lot of speculation has been made around that. I know, but the fact is, God ordered that. And look at what Jesus says. He says, Go to the sea, cast in a hook. So, you know, Peter, there's something you need to do. But here's what's going to happen. You're going to get a fish. And the first one that comes up is the one that's going to provide what is needed here. You're going to open its mouth and you're going to find a piece of money. You're going to find the full shekel to pay for you and me. How did Jesus know that? You see, there is a sense here in which there is this manifestation. As Matthew writes about this to the Jews of his day, he is saying, listen, that Jesus is God. He is Jehovah Jireh incarnate, the Lord who provides in the flesh. And so much more could be said about that. But it seems to me significant. And by the way, just, you know, parenthetical here, when you are in need, you who are the people of God, you are, you who are sons, you who are children, you who are free, indeed, remember who it is in whom you are free. And remember what Paul said, um, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by the very one that we're looking at right here by Christ Jesus. Don't forget that. He can do it by way of a fish. He can do it by way of a fowl. He can do it by way of a better job. He can do it any way He pleases. He can do it by way of mystery money coming your way. He can do it any way He pleases. He will provide for His own. That's not the major point here, but something you can take away from this example. But it seems to me, as we bring things to a close here, Don't check out quite yet. There's something significant in verse 27 when Jesus said, 
You're going to find that money. And then he says, take that and give it to them. What does he say? For who? He doesn't say for us. I find that significant. He says for. And that word for is actually, if you could see, if you, you can look it up yourself if you want to, but there are many words that are translated for in the New Testament. This one is a word that actually literally it's against or instead of. There's substitution going on here. He says, take that and give it to them for me and you. A distinction is being made for me and you. Let me begin with for you. For you, Peter. Remember Exodus 30. We read this temple tax, as it's now being called, was a ransom. It was money for ransom. It was literally the price of a life. It was given for your soul, it says. Lest a plague come upon you. It was for your atonement. For a covering. To, for reconciliation. Now Jesus had no need of paying such a tax, did He? And this is one of the reasons why I see there's a distinction being made here. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Not for us. Jesus didn't need that tax for that purpose. He had no sin. He had no need of ransom. He had no need of atonement. You made that point, didn't you, in the last hour? He was perfect. Like Joseph appeared to be. But Peter did need a ransom. He did need a price. He needed, he needed the price of a life. And so, Jesus provides this symbolic ransom payment. The half shekel. And then, He fulfilled the symbolism in His own life about six months later. Do you see that? As the imagery, the the shadow, the type of the temples fulfilled in Jesus, so everything associated with it, including the half shekel, the ransom price, the atonement price. You know, Peter later fully understood this. This is how I know. This is what he writes in First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. And I'm thinking that Peter may have actually had this incident in mind as he writes these words. He says, Knowing that you were not redeemed... The ransom price. You were not redeemed with corruptible things like shekels, silver, and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. The half shekel and the necessity of that half shekel on an annual basis, that had become a tradition of your fathers rooted in Moses, rooted in the law. But that actually did nothing for you ultimately. It was only a shadow. It was 
pointed to something. And Peter came to fully understand that, understand that uh, after the resurrection. And he says, this was the price, but with the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter understood. Do you understand that? Do you understand that you, you can't earn, you can't pay your way into favor with God. You can't follow a religious tradition that sets you right with God. There's only one way, and that is through Christ, through the blood of the Lamb, the price that He gave His own life. He's the shackle. He's the half shackle. He, he's, he's the fulfillment. He's the price of redemption that was paid. But then Jesus says, take that and give it to them for me and you. Why for me? And I think this is where we emphasize what Jesus says. Nevertheless, lest we offend them. And so Jesus is seeking to avoid an offense. And so pay it for me. I don't need it. Not simply because I am the son and, and this is my father's house, and I, therefore, I am free. But I don't have sin. There's nothing typical about that for me in that. But I don't want to needlessly offend. And so pay it for me and for you. And of course, that would have, the point we're making here would have been true for Peter as well. Though I think more is understood. Peter understood this principle. And again, in 1 Peter chapter 2, and just let's just brush over this. He uses the very same word that Jesus uses. Jesus said, then the sons are free. Jesus, uh, Peter uses that same word in 1 Peter 2 in verse 16 as free. Yet, not using liberty as a cloak for vice or evil, but as bondservants of God. And in the context, he is talking about the submission that we are to have to every ordinance of man. Not only those that God's law says, but God has said there are authorities. And I'm going to take time to cultivate this. As I say, we'll talk about that in another message when we get into Matthew 20, 22. But the question I ask is, does it matter? Does it matter if we offend or are an unnecessary stumbling block to an unbelieving world? It did to Jesus. It must to us. And so Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, Yes, your citizenry, your citizenship ultimately is in another place, isn't it? Your pilgrims, your sojourners, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, the others, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. We need to order our lives and make our choices in such a way that we are not an intentional stumbling block or an offense 
so that others will turn us off or tune us out. Though that may not be exactly what Peter intends there. It is exactly what Paul intends. When in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, verse 19, For though I am free, the sons are free. I am free from all. I have made myself a servant to all, bondservant of God, in order that I might be a servant to all, that I might win the more. That I, There's a purpose for this. That I not shut the door. That I not unnecessarily offend and close the door of opportunity. To actually speak to somebody or someone listen to the message. And that's the whole point Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. To the Jews became I as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. Okay. They want me to pay a temple tax. I don't have to. I'm going to do it. Paul did that in his own life, didn't he? There were things that he did following the law that he was no longer subject to. But when it became, when that became an offense to the gospel, he did it. You remember Titus in Galatians chapter 2. Timothy, be circumcised. What the law says, don't want to be an offense, want to keep the door open to ministry. Judaizers coming coming along and saying, you must be circumcised. Titus, forget it. No. No. The gospel is at stake, you see. But our attitude ought to be only if the gospel is at stake, should we draw a hard line and say no. And brethren, I think this is applicable to some of the things we're coming up to in this season of the year. And gathering with families and different things. I think we need to be careful. That we're not needlessly offensive. That we're not needlessly drawing lines because we're trying to be bold or something. We need to make sure that we have this mind of Christ. And you know, as sons of God, we might argue that we're king's kids and we're under no obligation to anybody or anyone. Even the governments of the world. We have freedom. But you know, Aaron, there's nothing wrong with shutting the megaphone down in a place where the government says, you know, you can't use that here. Is anything wrong with that? Now, if they're saying, shut your mouth, don't preach Christ, we've got another issue, don't we? But even there, I mean, what is Rami Halasay supposed to do? You understand, we need to use wisdom. So that we live our lives not as arrogant children of God. He's going to talk about humility in the very next chapter. That we follow our our master. Jesus says, lest we offend them. So while we are free from many things as sons of the king, and we are. We are bound by a spirit That is deeper than lawful obligation. And what is that spirit that binds us? Can you say love? Hebrews 13 and verse 8. Oh, no man, anything. There you go. And that's all some people hear, you know, and then they go off all kinds of thought. That's not the point. Owe no one anything except you are a debtor 
to love. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law, you say. And this is the spirit that is moving Jesus, I believe, in this particular incident. Nevertheless, lest we offend. Motivated by love. Motivated by the new covenant, right? And you know this is not a message toward lawlessness. You get that, I hope. I don't have to, you know, cover every caveat. But oh, brethren, let us follow our Master who humbled Himself. He humbled Himself here. Denying a right. He who was rich became poor that he through his poverty, that we through his poverty might be rich. So here's the impoverished, impoverished Savior, the impoverished Redeemer providing and setting a precedent for us as he denies a right that was his for the good of others on his way to laying down his life, the payment price for you and me. That's love. That's love. And may we live by the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It's liberating. And I'm still growing. And you are too. And let's grow together. The one thing that I thought about even in preparation for preaching is that the Holy Spirit would enable me to be able to preach in a way that was not unnecessarily offensive or a stumbling block. That you might actually hear the message in the Spirit of Christ might do you good through the message. And so, Father, I 